0: Please keep it open uh, to Romans chapter 6. This is the third part. Uh, we've been thinking about some of the barriers to fighting against sin. And uh, we thought about the barrier of a mindset of despair last night. Uh, we thought about the barrier of indifference this morning. And uh, really what we're going to think about this evening is the fight against negligence. Another settled mindset that creates a barrier... In this fight against sin. I was reading uh, Beowulf uh, a week or two ago. It's that old, you know, kind of a somewhat medieval, you know, story. You've got all of these uh, Norwegian type uh, warriors and there's this monster, Grendel. And the thing that really surprised me as I'm reading this, this story is, you know, you've got these warriors and they sit in the mead hall and they know that night after night this monster, comes and pretty much takes one of them apart and takes it takes him away and consumes him. But what do they do? They go to sleep in the mead hall. And I just think, I just can't fathom getting any sleep in the mead hall knowing that there's a grindle on the prowl that's going to tear somebody limb to limb. But the strange thing is, there is an enemy that's on the prowl. There's a lion who seeks to devour us and I don't think I'd have to look fine to f- look far to find some Christians that are more or less sleeping while that lion is on the prowl. Now, we want to think about what the hope is this evening. And the hope is that instead of this attitude of negligence, which is so typical, I think, of modern Christians, what we want is diligence. Isn't it remarkable? The Lord Jesus, as he goes out into the wilderness to do battle with Satan, That he's praying, he's fasting, he's diligent in these disciplines that maintain communion with God. If that's true of him, that command he gave so long ago to watch and pray lest you fall asleep is something that we need to think about as well. Now just to begin, I want to think of two lies that feed negligence. We thought about lies that feed these other dispositions. So a couple of lies that feed a negligent attitude towards sin. Maybe you wouldn't word them quite the way I've worded them, but you hear these excuses often among Christians. Here's the first one. It's the lie that to fight sin, we need to let go and let God. Now underlying that lies this assumption that the Holy Spirit likes to work independently of us. That if we somehow exert effort, that that diminishes what the Spirit would want to do in our life. Now the great writer on fighting sin, John Owen, listen to how he describes the typical way that the Holy Spirit acts. He says, He doth not so work our mortification, our putting sin to death in us, as not to keep it still an act of our obedience. The Holy Spirit works in us and upon us as we are fit to be wrought in and upon. That is to preserve our own liberty and free obedience. He works in us and with us, not against us or without us. That's too complicated. Let me give you a picture. As Christians, don't think of us as a motorboat, but a sailboat. A motorboat just operates all by itself. It's got all the power. Just let it do its thing. Now, a sailboat, you've got to put up the sail. But you put up the sail, that doesn't actually do anything to propel the boat forward. It's the wind that drives the boat. And yet, if you want to catch the wind, you put the sail up. And that's the kind of picture that Owen is describing, that the Spirit works with us, in us, not against us or without us. Now, here's a second lie that a lot of Christians believe. Again, this impedes this battle against sin. It produces negligence. This is the lie that effort is the twin brother of legalism. There are so many Christians that I bump into and they don't like the thought of effort. And the problem is they don't define legalism accurately. Strenuously exerting yourself for the sake of holiness, that's not legalism. Legalism is thinking that your performance of the law is what gives you a righteous standing before God. As soon as you're basing your righteousness on your effort, yes, you've stumbled into a ditch, you've got to realize that that is just going to result in failure. But what we see throughout the Scriptures is we're called to exert ourselves. I mentioned it this morning. I'll mention again. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You go down to verse 24. What does Paul say? Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but one receives the prize? Run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. We do it an imperishable. And then talking about himself, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one who beats the air. I discipline my body and bring it under control. This is not an apostle who was uncomfortable with effort. So we're called, what we need to see is that the Holy Spirit is going to use our exertion to put sin to death in our lives. Now with that foundation, what I want to talk about, and this is pulling together what we've talked about in the previous two sessions, is I want us to ask the question, what does it look like diligently to fight against sin? And I want to make this as concrete and practical as I possibly can so I want to talk about ten rules of war against sin. And some of this is going to be reviewed. Some of you have heard it from the previous session. Some of you are here tonight. You've not heard it. It's going to mainly be taken from Romans 6. We might dip into a couple of other places in Romans. But I want you to see in the Scriptures how much practical counsel we get for this battle that we face against sin. So here's the first rule is that to fight against sin, you need to know your position before God. It's what we talked about last night. Look at verse 11. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's so important when you're on this battlefield against sin that you know your location. And what I mean by location that you look back You see the cross, and you know that the condemnation for your sin fell on the Lord Jesus Christ such that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is what frees you up from the kind of guilt and shame that is not productive, but is just a burden. But you also need to see the horizon in front of you, That There's this promise we talked about last that sin will not have dominion over you. It's that horizon of hope that gives you the strength that you need to continue to move forward. And so you know the position from behind. You know the position before. But you also need to look up and realize that the Lord Jesus Christ, He is in heaven as the High King of heaven now. And so you've got this communication. So as you are walking along this battlefield, you've got a commander-in-chief who he knows your need and he will give you the grace that you, know, that you need moment by moment. To fight against sin, that rule number one is simply you've got to know your position before God. Reckon yourself dead to sin, alive to God. It's fundamental. Here's the second rule of war is that to fight against sin, you have to put up a strong defensive stand. Now, this is what we thought about this morning. This is verse 12. Let me just remind you of it. He says, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. What Paul is suggesting there is that when the temptation comes, we say no, and we forcefully resist the first movement of sin in our hearts. We sometimes laugh at Luther. There's that famous... You know, Luther, he felt like there were always devils about him. There's that one time he throws the ink pot. Now, I'm not going to suggest that you should throw your pencil at the wall, but here's what we should do. That moment, it's so helpful. When you feel the trigger of sin, call it out. Say verbally out loud, I'm being tempted right now. When you say what happens is your whole perspective changes, it feels suddenly like you're in a battle. And your attitude changes. That second rule is that we've got to put up a strong defensive stand. We've got to say no to temptation when it comes our way. Now here's the third one. Now we're getting into some newer territory. Is that if we want to fight against sin, we need to be even more aggressive on offense than we are on defense. This isn't my wisdom. If you want to see it, look. It's right there at verse 13. Paul, he tells us, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. That phrase, instruments for righteousness, could equally be translated weapons of righteousness. It's not enough in this fight to simply try to play defense and resist and push back sin from encroaching. Paul says we're meant to take the offensive. We're meant to present ourselves and our members as weapons of righteousness. Now what this means is, again, if you're thinking about a particular sinful passion, it's not enough, I'm just going to pick up lust as such an easy one, it's not enough to simply avert your eyes and try to avoid seeing things that might defile. If you're going to present your eyes and your mind as a weapon of righteousness, this is one of the members that God has given you, then you have to actually sharpen that same faculty to see what is good. See, Jesus says if your eye is good, your body is full of light. If your eye is bad, your body is full of darkness. The name of the game with holiness, it's not just resisting evil, it's actually cultivating, pursuing what is good and what is virtuous. I'll change it up slightly differently. You think of just the resource that God has given with our attention. Our ability to let our mind alight on an object. It's not enough to try to avoid distraction. You've got to ask the question, what should my mind be attracted to? And how do I take this member, this part of my mind that God has given me, my attention, and wield it as an active weapon of righteousness? That's what is suggested in that verse. That we need to not just play defense, we've got to go on the offense and pursue righteousness actively. And we could say more about that, but I want to move on. Here's a fourth rule of war in this battle against sin. Again, it comes straight out of Romans 6. This is something that when I say it, you're going to think, wait, no, 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 no. You're just inserting life into spirituality. But I'm not. I'm standing on the shoulders of theologians, great theologians, all through the ages. Now, this uh, fourth rule of war is that if we're going to fight against sin, we have to live and understand the law of habit. Now, look down at verse 16. Paul says, Do you not know, suggesting that you should know this, that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin... Which leads to death or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Paul is telling us that even though legally, we are not the slave of sin, functionally, if we practice sin, that we will find ourselves in a position of being enslaved to it. We've got to be a little bit careful with all of this, but we often talk about the power of sin being broken. And in one sense, yes, but really it's the authority of sin over us that's been broken. What Paul is warning us is that actually we can hand sin power back when we choose sin and to indulge our flesh. Now, just so you don't think I'm saying something I shouldn't, listen to what J.I. Packer says in his book, Keeping in Step with the Spirit. Habit forming is the Spirit's ordinary way of leading us in holiness. Now, in terms of making this really practical, the way I like to think of this, whenever we choose a sin, it's kind of like putting a rubber band around your wrist. If you put a single rubber band around your wrist, and if it's a small rubber band, and if I say break free, you say, okay, that's easy, and you just break the rubber band. But what happens if you put two rubber bands maybe you can still do it, maybe three, maybe you can still do it, maybe four, maybe you can still do it. You hit a certain number and all of a sudden you're no longer free because you got about 35 rubber bands around your wrist holding it together. And that's what Paul is warning us, that if we practice sin, we will find ourselves getting good at sin. And this is why part of the patience of sanctification is what we've got to realize as we come to Christ, we come with lots of rubber bands, tying our wrists to all kinds of sinful behavior. And often the way that the Spirit works is, you know, as long as it takes to put those on, it's one by one as we take them off that we discover the fullness of the freedom we have in Jesus. But what I want you to see is that this law of habit it works both ways. That the more we practice righteousness, the more free we are to be righteous, the more we practice sin, the more functionally we will find ourselves feeling as if sin is a master in our life. Now here's the fifth rule of war. That if we want to fight against sin... That we need to meditate on the sinfulness of sin. Now again, I'm going to tell you something. This is really unpopular. It sounds, you know, kind of like it would be bad for your mental health. It's the kind of advice that you get from the Puritans though. Someone like John Owen would tell you to load your conscience with the guilt of your sin. Now, the reason he's saying this is because the problem with so much of our sin is deep down there's something in it we like. We're not really willing to give it up. It still gives us some little buzz, some little you know, pleasure, and until we really see it for all of its sinfulness, we're not willing to cry out and say, Jesus, take it away. Now, when I tell you to meditate on the sinfulness of sin... We thought about that this morning. Let me tell you what I'm not saying. There's a fundamental difference between sin-loathing and self-loathing. Between condemning talk and confessional talk. I'm not telling you to sit back and talk about how horrible you are as a person. That's way too egotistical to be of any use. What you do is you take that little darling passion that you think is life-giving and you put it out and you look at it. And like we did this morning, you think of the danger, the guilt, and the evil. What you really want to do is take the cross and picture Jesus and there he is suffocating and he's bleeding and everybody's mocking him. And you put that little darling sin right beside him and connect the dots and realize this is what it did to my Savior. And when you leverage that love in your heart for Jesus, which I know you have if you're a believer, and you put the love of Jesus next to the love of that sin, what happens is that sin begins to lose a little of its shine and a little bit of its attractiveness. And so if we really want to cease, begin to be diminished, we've got to be willing to think on the sinfulness of sin, the misery that it really causes us, And again, not to try to heap condemnation. There's no condemnation. But to bring us to that place of confession where authentically we can say with honest, sincere desire, Jesus, would you free me from every last touch and defilement of this sin in my heart? That's the place of real repentance when we're really wanting to see sin be put to death. Now, here's the sixth rule of war. And again, that fifth one, if you think that I made that up, I didn't. You can find it down in verse 21. Paul, again, he's talking about what fruit did you get from the things of which you're now ashamed. He's telling you, look back and realize the shame that this sin had caused in your life. Now, the sixth rule of war is that if we want to fight against sin, we also need to meditate on the glorious riches of righteousness. Let me... Pull this out of the text so you can see it. I'm not giving you my advice. I'm trying to help you understand what Paul is saying. Look at verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. He's not just wanting them to look back and re- discover or rediscover the horror of what sin had done in their life. He's wanting them to look forward at all the wonderful things that God has in store, things that Satan wants us to lose sight of. Now again, to make this all just clearer and easier for you to grasp, let me ask you this question. What's the easiest way to forget about a bad girlfriend? Don't forget about a bad boyfriend. It's to fall in love with a good girlfriend or a better boyfriend. And what Paul is telling us is he's wanting us to set our mind on things that God has for us that are legitimately better than what we're letting go of. Let me just read a quote from Thomas Watson. We just passed his old church. He says, the reason our affections are so cold to heavenly things is because we do not warm them at the fire of holy meditation. As the musing on lustful objects makes the fire of lust burn, as the musing of injuries makes the fire of anger burn, so meditating on the transcendent beauties of Christ would make the love of Christ flame forth. You want to see sin shrivel? Fill your heart with a love of Jesus by meditating on who He is and what He has in store for us. Here's a seventh rule of war. Here we'll jump to Romans 8 verse 13. Is that if we want to fight against sin, we need to put to death the deeds of the body. I'll read it for you. You're in Romans chapter 8. You're down in verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's really important to know, say, with something like pornography, it's not just a heart problem, it's a phone problem, it's a Netflix problem. It's really important to know that with something like gluttony, it's not just a heart problem, it's a biscuit problem. Again, it might be a television problem. That when we're talking about sin, yes, it's a heart issue, but what we do with our body feeds the heart in our idolatry. Listen to someone a lot smarter and wiser than me, Thomas Chalmers. This is what he says about the way that refusing a deed can weaken the passions of the heart. He says, and therefore, if you want to dethrone the appetite, refuse the indulgence. If you want to starve and enfeeble the desires of the inner man, mortify the deeds of the outer man. We've got to connect these two things. They're both important in the fight against sin. We've got to deal with the heart issue, but also we've got to take seriously what Paul says about putting to death the deeds of the body. Now here's an eighth rule of war. You can go back, you can get these later. I know it's a lot but I think all of them are important and I don't think we hear them enough. Is that if we want to fight against sin, we need cut off any provision for the flesh. We're still in Romans. You're in chapter 13. You look down to verse 14. What does Paul tell us? He says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its lust. How many times do we Position ourselves in a place of weakness with regard to sin. I always think of Augustine. He had his friend Alypius. Alypius, he was a law student in Rome when Augustine was living there. Alypius was known for his piety. He was known for his purity. He wouldn't go anywhere near the Colosseum to watch any of the gladiatorial matches. Until one day his friends baited him and they said, look, just come inside, close your eyes, you don't have to see anything, just come with us. And he did. And he goes, and you can imagine, he goes into the Colosseum, there's like 60,000 people, it comes to that moment where one gladiator is going to put to death the other, it's about to happen, 60,000 people, cheering at the top of their voices, guess what he did? He opened his eyes. And Augustine recounts that, Lust for violence flooded into his heart, and from that day on, he became the person recruiting other people to come and watch the gladiatorial games with him. Now, when was the mistake? It was not the moment he opened his eyes. It was the moment that he went inside the Colosseum and made provision for flesh to fulfill its lusts. Friends, we've gotta be honest. We may not have the strength for social media if we struggle with vanity. We may not be have the strength to have Amazon Prime if we struggle with lust. Paul's very clear, make no provision. Don't strategize about how flesh is a foothold in our life. If we want sin to die, we need to avoid temptation when we're able to, which is not all the time. Here's the ninth rule, guys. We're going to ten. The ninth rule of war. If we want to fight against sin, we've got to be all in the battle. If you want to see this, we're in chapter 12, verse 2. Or rather, verse 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What's so interesting about his use of the body there is what he suggests is that anywhere we are physically present is a place where we're meant to live out a life of spiritual worship to Jesus. And what this means is that we're never off duty. That you can't think, okay, I can relax from the battle of sin. God can give you rest. But we've got to realize wherever we are is a theater of war. And that what we're called to be is a living sacrifice. And when you talk about being holy before God, this means that there's no such thing as a small sin. You can't just decide, I'm going to deal with this one because it seems big to me, but not this one because it seems all to me. That in the eyes of God, it's all significant. And so you're either all in the battle, or truth be told, you're not in the battle at all. And friends, here's the last one. Here's number 10. It's that if we're going to uh, wage war against sin, is that we need that defiant hope that we talked about last night. We need to know that God's words are promised to us that sin shall not have dominion over us. And so because of this, again, we don't trust our feeling. We don't trust our track record. We trust in the promise and in the word of God that he will finish that which he has begun in our life. The way I want to uh, just illustrate and the way I want to wrap this up is there's this remarkable uh, passage in Isaiah chapter 8. And in this passage, uh, God is telling His people through His prophet that He's bringing in the Assyrians. That because they've rejected the still and the slow waters of Shiloh, that He's going to flood them with this river from the east. And the thing is that the people of God, that they're going to experience the challenge as well, that this river, it's going to go up, and it's going to go up, and what He says is that it's going to sweep into Judah. Judah. It's gonna reach all the way to their neck, but what he gives them is this watchword. And the watchword that's gonna preserve them as the water gets to their ankles, as the water gets to their knees, as the water gets to their waist, as the water gets to their shoulders, as the water gets to the neck, there's gonna be one word that's gonna preserve them in those fearful circumstances. Emmanuel. God with us. That in all of it and through all of it, He's with us. And listen to this wonderful little hymn that God gives His people in this context. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For what's the basis of this trust? That the battle is ultimately going to be won. Emmanuel. For God is with us. And friends, that is the reason we can have such hope in this battle. Yes, sin strapping on the armor. Yes, Satan is taking counsel with all his legions of evil to do us wrong, but the word that's going to preserve us and that gives us hope, even in the moments where the water is up to the neck, is Emmanuel, God, is with us. And He will get us through the waters, He will get us through the fires, and ultimately He will get us to that eternal life that's been purchased for us through His Son, the Lord Jesus. I know it's a lot, but it's a battle worth knowing how to fight. What I want you to see is just how much instruction God has given us such that we can really wage war against sin. Let's pray.